Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of CastingAcross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. I've always been intrigued with the idea that there are fish nearby. Probably like most anglers or even avid nature lovers, my fascination begins with the reassuring knowledge that there exists an ecosystem that is functioning properly and that I live close to it. I even went so far as to try to make that happen for myself in a very significant way. Currently, I live in New England. In the last few years, I've lived in Virginia, but before that, I was also in New England. I had a home in New Hampshire. After the requisite months of looking at houses, I was getting a bit jaded with the same old pro and con lists. An old furnace, but a great lot. A swampy backyard, but a clean and spacious living area. Then I stopped by the property that I would eventually buy. There's a stream in the backyard. After touring the home and doing my best attempt at a thorough inspection, I went outside to look at the property. The creek was a moderately paced, narrow little ditch that was much deeper than I expected from seeing photographs, and I immediately saw fish. I know now that most were dace and fall fish. That's all I caught in my years of tooling around the backyard, but on that day, I could have sworn I saw a trout. And it wasn't out of the realm of possibility. The little stream flowed between two larger ponds that were connected to a larger river system. This river received at least two stockings from the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. Trout could move around easily enough, or as I like to fantasize, it was a native brook trout that somehow avoided the multitude of ecological calamities that the watershed had suffered over the past few hundred years. I never caught a trout in my backyard stream but there was also no way to disprove the existence of salmonids in the creek either. And, as some kind of consolation, I did find a small spring within a 15-mile radius which had a flow that held a native population of brook trout. Knowing that there are fish nearby is indeed intriguing, but knowing that there are trout within close proximity is even more captivating. Their low tolerances compounded by the inevitable angling pressure makes them something special. Everywhere I've lived, I've spent hours poring over maps and guidebooks, hiking into likely spots, and having sly conversations with locals. On one level, my desire has been to catch fish. But ultimately, I think that I'm seeking to catch fish here. Particularly when it comes to trout, most places I've lived have been developed at the expense of the natural habitats, and the native trout have long since been extirpated. There's solace in catching a fish that has survived, held on, or otherwise beat the system. 
I'm aware that it is very unlikely that I'll discover some native population of brook trout that has long been forgotten or was somehow unknown until this point. It would even be improbable to stumble upon some stock trout that are relatively inconspicuous. But there's always a chance, and there's only one way to find out. When I go jogging outdoors, I like how I have an opportunity to think with minimal distractions. Call me paranoid, but having earbuds in seems like a great way to get hit by a car or be mugged or be mauled by a cougar. And being in the middle of a move and a job change required all sorts of contemplation. I could use a little bit of time to think, but getting lost in my thoughts led to other kinds of getting lost. At that time, I moved from a more rural location to a suburban environment. I've been exploring more and more and more on my daily runs. Saying that Northern Virginia has changed over the past decade would be a gross understatement. I got lost more often than not. A road that used to terminate into a T-intersection now continues for miles. Thus, I'd run for a few miles more and then have to run back. It led to great fitness and a little bit of stress. Thankfully, I never got called in as a missing person while I was exercising. As I roughly sketched out these jogs, I considered running along many subdivision ponds and interconnecting streams. While it was an unfortunate reality that most of these waters were overfished and probably poached, I was always on the lookout for a possible secret spot. One particular day, I was running alongside an incredibly busy trail. Cyclists, walkers, and other joggers were everywhere. I had been on that path dozens of times over the years, and a few times even that past month. This time, for some reason, I noticed a little pool for the first time. What caught my eye was the deep blue color. We'd been in basically drought conditions, but this little creek was full. Additionally, the weeds were a bright green. This sight caused me to slow, jog in place for a few seconds, and then come to a stop. Standing there, breathing heavily, I peered over the ditch and into the water. The color, the weeds, and the water level immediately made me wonder if I was looking into a spring. It wasn't out of the realm of possibility. There were other springs in the vicinity. The thought then crept in. What if this spring had a trout in it? This spring, right down the road from me, literally a few steps from where I used to live as a teenager. What are the chances? Well, if we're honest, they're 50-50. Either there are the conditions that can and do support trout, or there are not. How could a population have survived the pollution, predators, and people of suburbia? But fish, even trout, are much hardier than we give them credit for. As I moved closer to the pool, I did see a little bit of life. The characteristic frantic swimming motion of bait fish, probably some small panfish, they were darting in and out of the weeds in the culvert I was standing over. I didn't see anything else, so I performed the patented scientific exercise of spitting in the water. I don't know why I do this when I come to a stream, but I've had all sorts of fish respond. I'm not getting any sort of weird satisfaction of watching bluegills eat my saliva, driving pleasure from fooling some simple organism into thinking my spittle is foodstuffs. It just so happens to make fish reveal themselves. So after the minor foe feeding frenzy, I saw a larger silhouette dart from the tail of the pool into the weeds directly below me. It was dark, fast, and definitely more sizable than the other fish I'd seen. Even in that quick moment, I saw mottling or spots or vermiculations on the back of the creature. Could it have been a trout? As I began to process that thought, the sound of a bicycle on gravel distracted me. A teenage boy was riding past me, and he had a fishing rod strapped to his backpack. 
Paranoid as any other angler out there, I began to run again. The last thing I wanted was for this kid to think I was looking at a fish, possibly a rare trout paradise in suburbia. Taking off the way I did was probably much more conspicuous than anything else I could have done aside from yelling, there might be fish in here. I continued to jog and my thoughts were consumed with the idea of this being a place that I could fish. So I ran feasibility studies in my head of this being a trout. I skewed every variable in my favor. I debated when and how I'd fish the pool. At night, in a rainstorm, wearing camouflage? The last thing I'd want to do is clue someone else in on this little secret. My thoughts led me to get lost again. Lost in the maze of compounding suburban sprawl. Lost in my ill-advised quest to find trout under my nose, and also under the radar of the fishing public. A few days later, I sat in my car out in front of my house. I had three hours, and I intended to fish. But where? Even in suburbia, there are plenty of options. There were ponds nearby that were filthy with carp, and I've had those big goldfish on the brain lately. I was only a few minutes away from medium and large rivers. There were smallmouth, catfish, and anything else that it decides it wants to live in northern Virginia. And I could have literally driven five miles in any direction and be on good water. But I couldn't get that little pool off the side of that busy trail out of my mind. Now all my warm weather gear was in the car, so I had to hop out and run to quickly get my three weight. I plucked a half dozen puffy dry flies from a trout box and dropped them into an empty Altoid tin. And then I was off. It was a quick drive from my house to the trailhead. To get to a legal parking space, I had to pass by the spot. This took me to what is essentially the backyard of one of my former homes. Pulling in there was somewhat nostalgic, but in a fishing context. Perhaps I was a little bit focused or obsessed, but I wasn't thinking about memories of family or school at that place. I was thinking about all the places I fished when I lived there. How could I have very well gone to this particular place to fish if I had known about it? How I could have figured it out, gotten to know it well, and determined if there were indeed trout in my town? The next part of the adventure was the most exciting yet. I got to scamper across six lanes of traffic with a sling pack and a fly rod. I imagine that this is a bizarre sight for a passing motorist. Even when there's a significant body of water nearby, when there's a man darting over a major thoroughfare, when there isn't any sort of pond or river close proximity, maybe I put them in a greater danger from being distracted than I brought on myself. I made it across, in case you were wondering. Once I was on the trail, I was immediately paranoid again. I was going to show my hand, blow my cover, let every worm-dunking meat fisherman in the zip code know that there was big, hungry native trout ripe for the picking. I tried to slink down the trail inconspicuously. Seven feet of graphite make it hard to be inconspicuous. Or to slink, for that matter. I stopped to break down the rod into two pieces and caught the attention of a dog walker coming from the opposite direction. He gave me a double take, but didn't break his pace. Needlessly frazzled, I assumed that I passed the hole. It felt like I walked too far. But the last time I was here, I was running. I quickened my pace and started down a gentle grade. Then I saw the foliage thicken, and I knew I'd found the spot. Staying back from the drop-off to the water's edge, I began to formulate my approach. For some reason, I was treating my first cast like it was going to be my only chance at a fish here. Life is getting busier, but not to the point where I wasn't going to be able to fish anymore, especially five minutes from where I was living. And all the panic about alerting other anglers, those thoughts come and are quickly followed with more reasonable, less crazy ones that hover on or around reality. But it probably comes down to the few days of anticipation and speculation building this moment up. I followed a little wildlife trail away from the path, 
and made a mental note to do a thorough tick check after I got home. The pool went from the deep blue-green head to a gurgling riffle at the tail. Below it emptied into a swampy slough. I could feel a cool rising up off the water in the humid late morning. All in all, it was a very different little ecosystem than most other tiny creeks in the region. My hopes were high. I decided to tie in a small dry fly. My choice was a mangled parachute blooming olive that was rendered essentially a grayish hackle in a bright post. It seemed appropriate. Not gaudy, but not super subtle either. All the knots held fast. That's a good sign. Moving low and silently, I stepped into the tail end of the pool. It was cold. Cold enough, I was certain, for trout. That's the first half of a larger story called Trout Cody. And it details a little bit of my obsession and experience trying to find native or wild trout as close to where I lived as possible. Now, when I lived in Pennsylvania, I lived right on the Yellow Breaches Creek. I lived only a couple miles from Latorte, and so that was almost a gimme. It almost doesn't count. But there's other places I lived when I was living in New Hampshire, as I mentioned earlier, and obviously when I was living in Virginia, I really wanted to find wild trout super close to home. It was just some sort of mystique and intrigue that surrounded the whole situation. So next week, I'll pick up where I left off and continue that story. If you don't have the patience or you uh, don't feel like devoting another 15 minutes to me talking about it, you can always go to castingacross.com and you can read the rest of the story. But what's the fun in that? You can be patient. You can wait. It's all about the suspense. This week on castingacross.com, two articles. First one called Fly Fishing, Ice, and Cartoon Coyotes. This is a humor article. I don't write enough funny stuff, and that's because I'm probably more critical about my attempts at fly fishing humor writing than anything else, Um, but I thought this was pretty funny. It's about me falling down on the ice. I have a lot of articles about me falling down on casting across over the years. This one is a very good one, and it really only talks about like a few seconds. So it's, you know, 600 words, nice short, you know, four or five minute read, but uh, it's all about a few seconds of my time on an icy stream in the Shenandoah Mountains. And it's one of those moments, and you might be able to determine this as you read it, where I feel like there's a lot of clarity all these years later about exactly what happened. But I'm not sure how much of that is real and how much of that is just my mind piecing together uh, what I feel like it was like. But I feel like I can really remember falling down awfully well just because I can feel it, not just think about it. Another article called Need a Gift? Shop a Fly Shop. This podcast is being recorded a week before Christmas in 2019. But of course, you can receive and give gifts all year round, and this article is really very much geared towards that. But there's actually a much more specific angle I'm taking with this article, and on the top, there's a little disclaimer that says that you should be forwarding this and giving it to people who are in your life who are not fly fishers, because I advocate you kind of nudging them towards just going into a fly shop and saying, what should I get this person? Because fly shop employees, especially these days, the good fly shops, the fly shops that have been around for a long time that are doing well, the reason they're doing well isn't just because they have fly fishing stuff. You can get fly fishing stuff online, rods and reels and lines and flies and anything else that you could need. 
but the reason why the fly shops that are still existing in a brick and mortar capacity today are there is because of what they bring to the table. And although they have so much to offer those of us who are already fly fishing and are trying to improve what we're doing or just looking for a little bit of guidance in something new, they also can offer so much to somebody who has no clue what they're doing or very little knowledge about fly fishing, even to the point where they wouldn't even know where to start to get you a gift. So this is kind of mutually beneficial, of course. You'd be getting a fly fishing related gift, and then you'd also be encouraging the patronization of a fly shop. So check it out. It talks about a few things that you need to know if you were to walk into a store, but it's very basic stuff. What kind of fish does the person you're buying a gift for like to fish for? And things like that have a price range in mind. The kind of things that are going to set the fly shop employee up for success. So maybe don't be so bold as to just forward the article to somebody and be like, hey, buy me some fly fishing stuff for this coming holiday season. But at the same time, it does offer that sort of benefit if you were to do that. This week's recommendation on the podcast is Albion Mercantile Company. You can find them at Albion, A-L-B-I-O-N, mercantile.com. Awesome stuff, mostly national park focused. So this Christmas, my boys and I got my wife three big posters. These are like throwback style posters of the national parks. And we got one for Shenandoah, for Great Smoky Mountain, and for Rocky Mountain National Park. And we got big 11 by 14 prints. You can get them much larger than that. You can get them smaller than that. They have stickers. They have magnets. They have other sort of collectibles like um, uh, journals and things like that. Really cool artwork. They have very modern stuff. And they have, again, kind of that older aesthetic. I really dig it. And I kind of feel like we've just started our collection of stuff from Albion Mercantile Company. So go check it out. Uh, I would encourage you to do it ASAP if you want to do it for Christmas, but this is the kind of gift or just the kind of thing you'd buy for yourself any time of the year. It certainly isn't limited to the holiday season, but uh, definitely check out Albion Mercantile Company. I'll put a link to their website at the bottom of the show notes for this podcast on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.